Hello, and welcome to BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida, and Marion, Massachusetts, hosted by Ed Shanafee, USPTA professional and international businessman. This is the podcast that researches and looks at the club management and facility side of our business. Hello, and welcome to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Shanafee. I'm your host. And today we bring you one of those people behind the scenes in our industry. He's not on the court, one of the players showing off to the crowd, but he's one of those that supports all those players through his business, not just in our tennis industry, but in the golf industry and sports broadcasting across the globe. A graduate of Butler University, Michael Morrison has worked for NBC, ESPN, The Tennis Channel, and the ATP Tour as a producer, writer, and statistician. He's been the media coordinator for men's professional tennis in his past and for several years worked at the U.S. Open, Wimbledon, the French Open, the Australian Open as a producer feeding real-time information, match highlights, and information to the commentators, writers, and show hosts. Mike just finished working at the Masters this year in Augusta, Georgia, where his work has led him to show real-time and historic tracking of each player across the course, combining technology and volunteers with the CBS camera crews. On the golf side, he's worked at the Masters now for six years, the U.S. Open, the President's Cup, the USGA Men's and Women's Open, and more, all working on the technology, video display, stats, and all those graphics you see on the screen while you watch your favorite sporting event. Before we get Mike on the air, I'd like to remind our listeners that we've just updated our website at beyondthebaselines.com to include all the services that we offer for your club or your facility through our management, leasing, and ownership offerings. You can reach us via email at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or by phone here in the office at 508-538-1288. And now, without any further ado, one of the true specialists who brings what you see and hear on almost any sports broadcast, my high school tennis team colleague, Mike Morrison. Here's Mike. So I'm here this week with Michael Morrison, who I've known since high school. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm good. And yourself, Ed? I'm great, thanks. And and I, uh, I'm very jealous because your job, I, I saw you, I think, uh, last year or two years ago at the U.S. Open in Flushing Meadows. You get... Right. Yep, you just finished up the Masters uh, this this fall in the autumn, different this year. You head to Wimbledon, you've been to the Australian Open, you've been to the Olympics. It's a dream job. Can you tell us exactly for the listeners what you do and how you get to go to all these great sporting events? Well, Ed, I've been fortunate since uh, about 2014 to become an independent contractor and work for myself full-time for a company called Sports Media Technology, also known as, as SMP. We're actually based out of Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and they have offices in Jacksonville, Florida, and another division in Fremont, California. And um, I actually work for the Jacksonville division out of Florida, which is really their events division. And what they do in a nutshell is they go to all the major tennis and golf events, plus other things. They do marathons. They do cross-state games, a little bit of everything. But I'm in their event department, and we basically go to, or I'm fortunate to go to major sporting events throughout the world um, and set up a basically temporary 
scoring infrastructure and provide the entire scoring services and a lot of other things that we can get into um, for the clients. It's amazing where you get to go. I, I was looking at the history of your travels as we've talked over the years and you've been everywhere. Um, but explain to us, uh, and to me too, and the listener. So like, for example, at the masters this year, you just finished up at the masters if I, you had showed me some examples of what you and your firms do is, is a pick on the leaderboard. I can actually go to a hole and see where Dustin Johnson a is on what hole he is and his track where he hit his, where he hit his drive, where he hit his, you know, if he caught the sand trap and his second shot, his third putt and his fourth putt in the hole. So explain, explain how that happens and, and what's the reasoning behind that and, and, and how people follow through, through your software. Yeah. With golf, ironically, our company was previously known as IDS, Information Display Systems, and they were the first ever scoring provider for the PGA Tour back in the late 80s. And obviously, that's morphed into a lot of things. But one of our clients for the past 20-some years has been Augusta National Golf Club and, and, and the Masters. And we are their primary scoring provider. And then so what we've done with them for the last six years, since this is, this is my sixth master's, is we'll come in with a team of a roughly about 20 to 25 individuals. Mm-hmm. And besides for just providing the green sky, green side scoring access to the volunteers so they can record the strokes, you know, for Dustin Johnson, Ernie Els, whole nine yards, um, we do press room, we set up a temporary, uh, um, what do I call it? Uh, uh, servers. We have two servers in there. But the mm-hmm. thing which I showed to you, which is really, really cool, is is tracking of the shot of every single player out there, every shot that, that, that they do. And we do that with a combination of roughly about 115 to 120 volunteers. It's mm-hmm. probably the hardest volunteer group to get on. It's like trying to get a gr- Green Bay uh, Packers season ticket you're gonna you have to will it to your family so but our volunteers we have a software out there where we basically set up um on fairways and greens um lasers where volunteers will basically with the laser and basically it's using a tablet as long as you can use an ipad you can use our software and when that ball lands they basically shoot the ball with the laser um and then that's accurate within Last I heard, it's within like two inches. That's how accurate our distance is. So if Dustin Johnson hits a drive on the number one fairway and it lands 300 yards, that is basically spot on. And then that data will then go to TV. And you know, that's, a, that's the data you see up in the little ticker box where you know Dustin Johnson has 158 yards to go to the hole. That's data coming from our volunteers, coming from, from our software. But what the Masters has done, and, and this is kind of the – a lot of your listeners may be used to the PJ Tour ShotLink services. And ShotLink technically is actually our software, which we license to the PJ Tour, but they use their own equipment. But it's the same concept where if you want to go onto your smartphone or you watch on your computer, you can track every single shot that that player made. And it's basically, it's, it's a the computer overlay of the hole, and you'll see the shot trail for the shot number one, shot number two, and everything until the ball goes in. What's different with us at the Masters than any other event out there 
we tie in um, live video, or actually it will be playback. So every single shot that was hit out there is right. also captured via TV, and that is synced in our tracking system. So that's uh, I can't ex really explain how that all works. I'm not a developer, but if you want to watch all of Dustin Johnson's 270 shots for the entire Masters, you can go back online right now and physically watch every single shot. No, I I, I did. I watched um I watched Dustin's ninth hole, <laughs> and then I went over. Mm -hmm. And there was a player I didn't recognize. I'm, I, I do follow golf, but I, I didn't recognize his name. But I followed him on the uh, 11th hole. So you, you can see the track, and then you see the shot via CBS cameras, I guess, CBS Sports. Yeah, correct. What a job. So you get to uh, basically track these world-class athletes around all year, which is fantastic. you're a software guru you love you know the whole technology side of sports and coming back to tennis one of the big changes coming through in the next year or two especially with COVID I think it's pushing it through even faster to have fewer people on the stadium courts and on courts mm -hmm. is is the change to a uh, computerized line calling system correct review or whatever you want to call it um you're there. You're on on the site the whole two weeks. And, and, and for those of people who haven't been on a, a tournament site like Wimbledon or U.S. Open, the beginning of the tournament, it's actually heaving with people. By the end of the tournament, there's only two players there on the last day, maybe eight yep. doubles. And just just the lines people and basically people who are like you, Michael, the statisticians. <laughs> what's the what's the um, chit chat on tour about the, the, the computerized lines? and that coming on board? Well, everybody's aware of Hawkeye, and Hawkeye is a separate company outside of us that has done the electronic line calling since 2004, 2005. Yeah. Um, yep. And um, so they have the conglomerate. Two years ago, another company just came on board called Fox 10 out of actually Spain. And I believe... Uh, the old Spanish player Felix Montana mm -hmm. is is the uh, head of that. But so there's now two players in it. They do it differently than what Hawkeye does, and they actually put uh, high speed cameras. There's four of them actually down on the court. Um, it makes the court a little more cluttered in the whole nine yards. And then, ironically, our company is also developing uh, electronic line calling. We're probably about, I would say, no more than a year away from getting approved by the ITF, hopefully. But okay. the kicker, which I find interesting, is all of the line people that work, for example, the U.S. Open, that come in there and, and you know, they're the service line judges and those sort of things. Mm -hmm. That's like a cream of, the, cream of the crop, but it's also a feather on their cap. You know, they, they're working to work at the U.S. Open or the Australian Open or those sorts. So if you take away those, those personal line, line people is, what type of incentive would you have for the regular line person that's from Atlanta, Georgia, you know, to maybe get better, you know, because they have a chance to do this. So it's going to be interesting. I, I understand where economic that probably end up will be cheaper to have electric line calling on every court because you don't have to pay for the linesman and those sorts. 
but you know, you may miss something. And so I would suspect you'll see a combination of what's happening at the U.S. Open this year, where they had lined people on three of their big courts and everything else was electric line calling. So I personally, because I, I have some lined people that are friends, I mm -hmm. hope it doesn't go away because they like work in the U.S. Open and those sorts. But I can see where the day comes, maybe the next decade, where it's 100% electronic line calling across the board. It's, it's coming. It's, just a, it's eventually when. Yeah, it, that's a great point you make because I actually was an ATP lines person and chair umpire. And you do. You go and do all the junior hours so that you can get mm -hmm. selected to become, you know, to, to move up the ranks. And uh, my daughter just played in, in, in Palm Beach this past weekend, and there were two umpires there. And I hadn't even thought of that. You know, they're doing those hours, putting those hours in so that they can get onto the bigger uh, yeah. stadiums and, 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 and umpire the pros. And it is kind of a, uh, a passing era, I think. I think you're right. In, in the next decade or so, I don't think we'll have lines people at all. Um, but what do the players think? Have you heard any uh, – Chit chat from the tour players. I mean, I know you 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 see them bypassing them in the hall. Any any chit chat that you could relate to us? Not in person, just because everything this year that I did, especially at the U.S. Open, I did remotely in Jacksonville, Florida. But okay. you know, from what I've read via Twitter and everything like that, is they like it, and there's there's no questioning. And if, and if you watch the U.S. Open this year and watch in the outer courts where there were you know they couldn't challenge. Right. They were they they were all set for it, um, and it, it actually made it a lot quicker. When I was like statting a match that was not on the big three show court, hey, it's air umpire sees it, if it's in, it's out. And the electronic line calling just proves it. So, yeah. and I think when a, a couple of the players, especially the non seeds, might have you know won a couple of matches and got their third round match, you know, on to Ash, you know, they realized, oh, kind of like this better instead of yeah. going to town. So. I do think the players want it that way. And the biggest thing is, you know, you know, with the French, players want it on clay big time. I mean, you and I, we grew up on clay courts. You know, ironically, you remember the, you know, my club I used to be played with was a red clay. I mean, one of the few red clay clubs in, in New England. Yep. And, yeah, you can see that line, but they've shown with Hawkeye that, you know, sometimes the skid mark on the clay is not correct. You know, so – you know, I think that's the biggest thing is, is I, I would suspect you'll see electronic line calling on clay within the next year. Yeah, it, it does speed up the match for sure. And I, I know for yeah. TV that is a major, major uh, ingredient that they're looking at because by the time, that, especially in the French and all the French tournaments, all the clay, by the time the chair umpire gets down off his or her high chair down to the mark, which mark was it, A, and B, you know, yeah. I saw a perfect example. I mean, the camera work was fantastic at the French. They they kept the camera on the mark. The mark showed it good, but the Hawkeye said it was out. Um, amazing. Yep. Um, have you yeah. been involved with the serve clock? I think, and looking at uh, the answer, yes. Yeah, yeah you, our company. Yeah, because the U.S. Open last year was mm -hmm. the first year that they did serve clock. Could have been two years ago, but it was definitely last year where we rolled it out because it was actually in combination. The U.S. Open and Tennis Australia pretty much do things in conjunction with each okay. other. So if one does one, the other one will, will do the exact same thing. So, yeah, we were the first. Uh, we actually implemented the serve clock, and, and you know, we'll hang those little LED towers 
um, not files on the back of the court and implement that into our scoring software. Um, and then, so yes, that started the majors and that has obviously rolled out, you know, to the A3 core. The majors and the core, their umpires start the serve clock differently. And, you know, so sometimes, you know, when Djokovic gets to the U.S. Open, he complains like, well, you start that serve clock too early. And he's like, no, this is how we're supposed to do it. So I think in that mode, you know, serve clock, it needs to be uniform. Um, it is right now 25 seconds. Um, uh-huh. It's supposed to be once when the uh, chair umpire calls the point, he is supposed to, at least at an ITF event and the majors, is supposed to start that serve clock. On the tours, typically uh, they will wait about three or four seconds. So they get to about 30. So that's where I think, hey, Make it universal, make it 30. It starts once when the point's called, and then you have whatever you want to do within that 30 seconds. Go get your towel, or if you're Rafa, you want to wipe every piece of sweat off of your body during that time, that's perfectly fine. But serve clock is, is, is wonderful. Um, the only, yeah, the only thing that I hear of that about is on the TV side is depending upon the broadcaster, some broadcasters won't show it to their audience, you know, kind of like in the NBA basketball. We give that data, you know, to the broadcasters, but it's up to the broadcasters to, to display it. So I think when I was watching the French Open and Tennis Channel's uh, coverage of it, that they actually, once when it comes down to five seconds, it's an automatic trigger, hey, you know, the serve clock pop, pops up on the TV so the people can see what's going on. So I just think, you know, they just make that make that universal like we do in basketball and, you know, the play clock and football. <laughs> Once it gets down to five seconds, automatically turn on so your viewers know what's going on. Yeah, it turns to red on NFL, you know, the, <laughs> the play clock. Mm-hmm. Um, the serve clock's interesting. I, as a chair umpire, uh, I, I find it interesting in the age of COVID because the big matches when I worked, you know, years ago at like the Lipton, back when it was the Lipton. Yeah. Um, you'd have a lot of crowd noise and you'd have the crowd shouting and cheering. And then you would call the score after the, the noise died mm-hmm. from a great shot or what have you. And there's always three or four seconds in there. And I think that's why the ATP tour built those three or yeah. four seconds into when the umpire actually punches the button to start the clock. But then also I've noticed the ATP tour tends to not, and maybe you've seen more than I have, but it doesn't seem to enforce it quite as rigidly as the ITF. You know, they, they yeah, I, I wouldn't agree with that. Yeah. They're a little more lax. A little more lax, and I think that's why some tournaments are a little—I'd say—shy to put it on the TV because then you'll see how much time the umpire's actually giving them after the zero shows up. So, oh yeah, it's yeah, it's true. But you know, hey, it's been around for two years, so yep. I would say another year or two, it's going to be universal, and, and you know, we're going to be saying like, hey, it's, it's just like football and basketball. Everybody's used to it. it's going to be on the, It's going to be on the clock. Let me ask you about uh, the Masters since you just left there, and, and we'll go on to tennis after this. But um, I'm a I'm I've been actually watching golf, and I really like the golf without the fans. I wrote a piece on my website about it, and uh, I watched the, the the Open at Wingfoot, and it was really nice because you, you could see the the holes. You know, there weren't crowds of mounds. You could see the traps. You could see the design that the architects wanted you to see. But what was the Masters like, do you think, without cr- the crowds? I mean, 
Wait, wait, wait. Uh, it was, it was, to be honest, it was so anticlimactic. And that was really this, that was the same thing with Wingfoot when I was there, where you can definitely tell at the Masters. When you're at the Masters, you know where Amen Corner is. And if something happens on a hole and you hear it, you know what happened without even having to look at a scoreboard. And that's one thing with about the Masters is they don't allow patrons to bring in their cell phones. So the only way they know what's going on is by looking at the big leaderboards. Right. So if you hear a roar on Sunday afternoon from Amen Corner, and it's about that time when Tiger or somebody's coming through, you know, hey, something just happened here. And then you quickly, your eyes look up. There was none of that. I mean, Dustin Johnson, was it on Saturday, Eagles hole number two, which is yeah. always one of the holes you can eagle there. But early in the morning, has his ball 360 yards, does a 222, I believe it was uh, three iron or seven iron or whatever he hit, he hit into the green three feet and, and makes his eagle. I had no clue. And I was actually supporting those holes. And I had no clue that Dustin Johnson had an eagle because I couldn't even hear it. I actually had to go look on the scoreboard. Oh, hey, he just eagled that. So with that, it was extremely anticlimactic. And that's the biggest thing I think with golf and, and any sport right now is that's what makes sports in my mind wonderful is just the atmosphere. And the atmosphere at Augusta is is really second to none in, in terms of golf. It just it just you expect it, you want it. So hopefully next year fans will be allowed back. Even if it's a limited so. capacity, about even twenty five percent, you will know what's happening. <laughs> you still get the you'll still get the crowd war. Yeah. Yes. I mean it's funny that they were talking about the differences at the NFL with some some states and stadiums allowing you know twenty five percent and. And the crowd noise does make a difference. It really does make a difference to the teams trying to call, you know, at the line of scrimmage, you can't hear, yep. blah, blah, blah. And uh, these other teams that don't have the fans, they, you know, their play calling is, is nice and audible. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah. And it was interesting because some, I heard some of the uh, commentators were, were talking like, hey, this is a week, for example, that Roy McElroy could possibly win it because he doesn't have the pressure of the fans, you, you know, because he, he gets a big crowd. And so, you know, it can play into it. it can, uh, you know, a, a player is not as stressed. So, it, hey, it might have helped out Dustin Johnson that he, he didn't have 20,000 people following him around. You know, he just had, a, you know, occasional few, you know, watching him. Yeah, I, I did see that on the – it was on the Golf Channel. The, the, the announcers were – the broadcasters saying that this was, you know, possibly the year that Rory could do the, the uh-huh. Grand Slam. And uh, well, obviously it didn't happen, but – um, I, I found that an interesting point without the crowds. I just, as a TV viewer, I, I know if I ever get to go to the Masters, I, I, I hope I do, you know, someday, <laughs> uh, that the atmosphere is insanely fantastic. Uh, but as a TV viewer, it is really nice to see the holes. And that's what I was saying is like, you can see how the holes are shaped and how the oh, yeah. architect actually wanted the player to see the holes, which is really nice for a TV viewer. But I'm sure with the crowds coming back, uh, we'll, we'll be back to normal. Sooner rather than later, we hope. I wanted to ask you, because I, and, and this is the same kind of thing. I think people have been watching more sport on TV. I'm a sailor. I love sailing. And I've really gotten into watching the Vendee Globe because the, the suddenly, because they're, everyone's at home, we have time to track sports online. Mm-hmm. I'm watching the Vendee Globe, the around the world sailing race, as it mm-hmm. tracks across, you know, the Southern Atlantic out of Spain. And it's just, 
it's brought a, a new, I think, audience to some sports and some sports to, uh, to, you know, to a greater uh, audience. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, when the first lockdown happened, I was like, oh, I was looking around to see stuff. Heck, I started watching all their uh, NBC and the Olympic Channel, which was re-showing all of, you know, past Olympics. And I was like, well, shoot, I'm going to go watch some of this. <laughs> you start right. to, yeah, you get interested in other things. I agree. Yeah, I've been watching the sailing and, and, and it was funny. I watched the tennis channel and they had the, you know, they, they didn't know how long the pandemic was going to last. So they did yeah. the greatest players of all time. We all watched that. Yeah. Um, I didn't always agree with them, but. Yes. <laughs> As a, just bring me to the next question. Uh, as a very good player yourself, we played high school tennis together. We've we've gone out and played tournaments at your club, which was a great time way back when. I don't want to say how many years. Yes. Ago. How have you? Long time. It was a long time ago. How have you seen the men's game change? Oh, it, it definitely has. I mean, I've been fortunate, like you. Actually, right out of college, I started interning at an all now defunct tennis tournament in Indianapolis, Indiana called the RSA Tennis Championship. I was able to see Patrick Rafter, you know, hit his first ever upset of, of Pete Sampras. And you know, I've watched the game grow. I think, I think the biggest difference now is how athletic everybody is. Not just the top 10 players, but mm-hmm. shoot, everybody that's in that top 100, that there's some really athletic, I think they're much more athletes now and, you know, not the finesse type of players. You know, I don't want to say, for example, John McEnroe wasn't an athlete, but, mm-hmm. you know, you watch his game, you know, I would kind of equate him to a squash player. He had great hands, but, you know, outside of that, you know, was he the athlete that no way is he the athlete that Rafa is or Roger, those guys. But I think that's been the biggest change. It's how athletic everybody is. And because of that, you know, no one's serving the volleys anymore, as, as you and I both know. But when you find a player that does, you kind of gravitate, gravitate to him. I was fortunate last two summers to um, uh, go work at the Atlanta events, the Atlanta Open. And last year, a young Australian by the name of Alex Dominionar. He's, he's actually your height, so 5'8", maybe 5'9", um, maybe 165. But if you want to watch a young kid that has an all-court game and will attack off of anything, it's that kid. And he will serve in volley. He will chip and charge off of returns. But, you know, outside of those players, that's the biggest change is the athleticness. And then players are just want to pound from the baseline, which, you know, drives me crazy. <laughs> yep, no, I understand. And, and, and um, we're going to get to the women's game too, but on the men's side – I totally agree. The athleticism is is insanely good. I, I I can't remember what track and field star it was that was asked, you know, who's the greatest athlete in the world. He says every every tennis player, you know, um, <laughs> good athletes. Um, but you know, you go back to the Patrick Rafters uh, playing Pete Sampras, both and, and and you know, you brought you brought it up. They were both uh, serving volleyers. You know, Patrick Rafter was probably one of the best athletes of his era, and he yeah, did serving volleyer. Um, in terms of doubles, and, and this is what I find interesting in, in terms of what you do as a, stati- a statistician, you know, following, you know, supporting holes and, and following uh, different courts. Um, what I find interesting is that there's this difference 
of people who watch tennis. So a lot of people who watch tennis, you know, over the age of 30, they don't really play a lot of singles. Yep. Doubles yep. is the more, more played game by an amateur. And mm-hmm. yet don't get the support from CBS Sports of the doubles game. And the doubles game, again, is very different from the game they play at their clubs. How can you reconcile that or have you or can you not reconcile that? It's a question I ask a lot of people is, you know, people go and watch Fed, but they play doubles. And it's an amazing thing that they watch singles. So, you know, carefully and, and don't watch doubles that often. Yeah, I mean, it just really comes down to personality. You know, unfortunately, both fours, you know, they market their stars and their stars are singles players. Um, and then occasionally you have a, some of those singles players that will, you know, will double dip and, and will be good doubles players. What's mm-hmm. more interesting, which I think you, I don't think you will ever see more doubles on TV than we currently do. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you'll, you'll see the finals or the maybe, you know, the semifinals, or you can stream any match now on online you right. know, with, with Tennis Channel Plus. But, you know, the major networks, they're not going to put them on there. But what I have seen when I was heavily involved back in the tennis tournament days was um, the tournament directors started to at least showcase doubles a little more to their contingencies. So, for example, back in the old indie days, we would almost, not maybe Monday and Tuesday, but definitely as the tournament went on, we would have our leadoff match every night at 7 o'clock would have been a doubles match. Since the tour, you know, made – uh, adjusted it so that, you know, you play, you, you know, first two, or, and then and if it's tied, you play the match tiebreak in the third set. So you as the tournament director, you kind of know, hey, this is going to be done in an hour, hour and a half max. So, hey, that's seven o'clock, especially for a tournament director. People are milling about. They're still getting their food. They're going to corporate hospitality. Hey, yes, it's kind of, okay, we're going to throw doubles out there, but you can put the number one or number two double seeds in there. And as that time gets towards 7.30, 7.45, the people are done milling about in corporate hospitality. They're coming in for that match that's starting at 8 o'clock. So in person, I think permit directors are doing a good job at doing that. But, yeah, on TV, I just un, unless we get another type of Brian Brothers out there, I think doubles on TV in prime time is really not going to happen, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I, I agree with you. But, um, yeah, that's the way it is. And, I agree totally with, with what you're saying. Cause I, I went to the U S open uh, finals a couple years ago and what they used to do is put the doubles after now they put the doubles. I think it was mixed yep. doubles first and then it was yep. uh, the ladies singles. So going back to the, 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 the women's game now, has that changed since, you know, since you've been on tour watching them? I mean, how has the women's game changed? Is it the same? Oh, athleticism? No, the, the women's game is much more power. I mean, compared, you know, outside of, you know, Steffi Graf, who was my favorite female player of all time, mm-hmm. you know, the women's game is all power now. You know, obviously the Williams sister started it, but you look like, you know, the player like Arena Sabalenka, who I actually like, but she has one speed and one speed only. That's try to hit the, the schnot out of that tennis ball every single time. <laughs> Either works for her or it doesn't work for her. So, right. you know, I think the game has gone to power. You know, Wozniacki was able to, you know, have a couple of good years, but, you know, she's just a consistent player. She would never make a mistake, but she didn't have a power game. You know, right. Sloan Stevens, they, the biggest thing now, it's, it's power. I mean, they can, they can hit the, you know, what out of a tennis ball. 
We were noticing uh, over the summer months that um, watching it on tennis that the men seem to be, and, and it, you know, it's just kind of funny. The men are tall and lanky and extremely, extremely court coverage is fantastic because they can step six feet in one stride. Women tend to be that power. They're like power from the baseline and they're, they tend to be, you know, shorter, more uh, mesomorph. So they're, they're actually hitting really hard from the baseline. Yeah. If, yeah, if, if anybody was, was fortunate to go watch, you know, them play in person, it's the speed of the game is so much different. I mean, growing up watching Agassi, Agassi was the first player I remember hitting the ball really a ton. Now mm -hmm. all the men do that. And it's the same thing with women. I remember Steffi, but obviously Serena and Venus, you know, increased that, you know, started that in the early 2000s. But now I would say at least 30% of all the female players in the top 100 have a strong power game. And you can, you're like, man, this is why they got to have, a, you know, their hitting partner is, is a man. Yep. They got to practice. They'll hit that way. So. Yep. No, I agree. Do you think so? Going back to the golf, because you know you you see both, the best of both. You know, Bryson DeChambeau. I mean, he's got this huge, huge power game. Talk about power games. Um, but in actuality, a few people were actually hitting just as long as he was this week. This week at the Masters. Now, do you, do you think golf's going to go that way? Do you think they're going to make the courses longer? Do you think they're going to tighten up the fairways? What What's your sense of what what's being talked about? My sense is there may be a few players that try to go the DeChambeau route, you know, of putting on, you know, more muscle mass, you know, mm -hmm. just to try to out hit a golf course. But, you know, that's the one, that's the great thing about golf. There's not one single golf course that is the same. It's all different. So based off of mother nature, how the superintendents want to thicken the rough all nine yards, those things can even up the playing field, you know, going in the masters, everybody said, Oh, Bryson's going to do this. He is going to clean the clock. And he went in there. I heard about a week before. So I don't think he played the Houston open, but I think he was down there. He played with the uh, Sandy Lyle who had won a few years ago. And Sandy Lyle had said, you know, Bryson on hole 13 put his, took his driver out and drove it over to the 14th tee box. If you recognize aim and corner as well, hey, that's giving him a 50, about a 50 yard straight shot to hole 13 with, with really ha not having to carry Ray's Creek on an angle. It's a straight going over. Well, he never hit over there and, and he played bad. So I do think, think yes, power do, does help and it helped him at Wingfoot because, uh, you know, all the USJ events, they want par maybe two or three under to be the winning score. So what they're going to do is besides right. forget the greens fast, they're going to get rough that is thick. That's five to six inches deep. You get that ball in the rough, you're going to barely move it 30 or 40 yards. You're putting it you know, back on the, on the fairway. You know, at Augusta, there is no rough. That rough is a half an inch thick. So what makes Augusta hard is really if it's the wind's blowing and, and if, and if you can put and chip, you're going to do fine around there. I mean, ironically, the average winning score the last 10 years there has been 10 under par. Right. You know, BJ was 20 under this year. So doesn't Augusta, for example, uh, go thicker rough to circumvent, you know, the DJs and, and the DeChambeau's of hitting the balls? I don't think Augusta will, but you may see other tour events go that route instead of making the courses longer because 
not every course can, you know, go 75, 7,600 yards. They don't have the space. So what you have to do is make the fairways tighter and make the roughs longer. And I think, I think we'll see that. Do you, speaking about uh, power and, and, and do you, does do you in your firms, do they work on the radar guns and all that? That I, I think you do. You used to do the speed guns. Yes. Yes. We do the radar guns at all the, all the events. So for example, at the, at all the majors, the scoring all starts with the tear umpire and, and they put the score ball in or out, you know, and they aces and lets and those sort of things. But after that, we have courtside statisticians and all courts have a statistician. They're the ones that are you know, deciding the unforced errors, the forced errors. If it was won by a forehand pass or a forehand drop shot, whole nine yards. And then we, we have radar operators who, you know, basically, you know, you know, activate you know um the radar guns so yeah we have right. that technology so who's who's got the fastest serve now in the in the in the men's game do you know, I don't no, know. Is it, it could still be it, it, it still could be isner and a couple of those guys up there i think it yeah. is isner. And, yeah. and, and, and milos is probably those guys are around that 130 to 140 yep yeah there's because the, it's funnily enough i they were talking about at the French Open. They were talking about the different ball. I know the Wilson U.S. Open Wilson ball. It seems to me, it just seems a little firmer than the Babolat ball. So I was amazed to see the the French go that way, but they did. Um, but the U.S. Open ball is is so much, uh, I think, firmer than the the pro pen ball, the pen ball. So. I, yeah, I would, and I, and and I actually Ed, the H V four went away from the pen ball. They actually last year went to the Dunlop. Yeah, so they. Yeah, but I would agree with you. All the times that were you know playing USTA events, what does the USTA give your team captain? Can a Wilson ball, Wilson and ball, you can yeah. tell just there's a slight difference that those balls are a little heavier. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I wonder how much, and, and maybe you know this is something I maybe there's no science behind it, but. Uh, it's funny, my daughter and I are doing a science project, and this is what we're thinking about is we're, we're stringing one racket at 70, one racket at 50. We're going to drop a ball from 30 feet high, yeah. drop it onto the, onto the strings on a cement slab and shoot the speed as it comes off the, screen, as it comes off the strings, right? And, uh, and I said, you know, the variable here is the ball, the string tension, the racket, because we have the same racket, same string, just a different... But the balls, we're going to try different types of balls because I have a feeling that the balls are going to be a little different in terms of tenths of a degree of um, speed coming off those strings because the balls are, they're so different. Yes. And I'm wondering if there's any science to it in the radar guns, but probably not. But, you know, Federer probably has some. He just hasn't told anybody. Probably. So to wrap things up, um, how's your tennis game? What, what what have you been playing? Where have you been playing, and and, and what's it like? Well, since I moved up to the Asheville, North Carolina area last summer from Hilton Head, so when I was down in Hilton Head, I was playing two or three times a week when I was home. When I moved up here, Ed, I must admit I have yet to pick up a tennis racket. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you come so, down, to, yeah. So I need to come down, but yes, I was. I could real quickly get back to my four or five level um, yep. if I put the work into it. Um, so, and yes, since you and I last played, 
I actually have a real serve that's not this funky thing that looks horrendous. You may remember my old serve, like, what the heck is that thing? I kind of remember the motion, yep. Yep, I had a wacky motion. And I actually have a, I actually can do a top spin backhand, not just a slice, but I have a top spin backhand. But I, I would still admit, most everybody that I play with is still amazed at actually how good my slice backhand is. I mean, I've, I've always had a great forehand, which you knew about. Your forehand but was ironically, big. Ironically, yeah, my, yeah. Let me ask you about so, the backhand topspin. Is it one hand or two hand? I think it's going to be a one hand, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's one. I, I don't put two hands out there. <laughs> it, it, it's more of a one-handed flat, but if I have to pass somebody, I, I do have it in my in my tool. In your arsenal. Yes. Well, last question. What do you think is going to be the biggest change to come to tennis in the next post-COVID? What do you think the biggest change is going to be? Do you have any hints, anything you've heard, any ideas on the software technical side? What's going to be the change, do you think? I think is, is what we go back to. I think number one, electronic electronic line calling on mm. all courts. I think they're going to go to that. You know, Indian Wells was the first event to actually do uh, you know line calling on all courts, still with with the lines people, but mm. they had the Hawkeye on every single court. I think that's to be number one. Is I think even the smaller tournaments will probably go to having you know electronic line calling. I think that's number one. Outside of that is, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have competing companies, like I said, like myself and this other Fox 10, who are going to go after Hawkeye's business. So, right. you know, but that's on the business side. But I think the biggest see post COVID is, is the reduction of actual lines people out there. And I, hopefully they keep the, the rule that the, the players have to get their own towels. There's no reason a ball kid to be getting a player's towel, even before COVID. Let them get their own towels. I totally agree. No, I mean, I'm Michael, sorry, how many times would you want to pick, keep picking up Ralph Nadal's towel? I mean, that thing is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> On that wonderful note, here in a COVID pandemic, we're not going to be touching Rafa's towels. I thank you so much yeah. for being part of the podcast here, and it's been great to talk to you and catch up with you and, and – uh, Good luck with everything you do for the tour, for the golf, for the Olympics with your company. And uh, thank you so much for all your time today and, and, and setting this up. Not a problem, Ed. Much appreciated. And great to speak with you again. Oh, it's been great to speak to you. Have a great day and uh, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. I'm your host, Ed Shanahan, and it's a pleasure bringing you every week news and views and great guests from our tennis and fitness industry. You can always reach me at beyondthebaselines at gmail.com or by phone at the office on 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website beyondthebaselines.com and on our site there's a link to our Patreon page which has even more information for you and your club and your facility in our wonderful industry. Thanks for listening. See you again soon.